Good morning, my name is Terry Jank and uh, one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist Church and it's uh, our pleasure to be able to reach out from here to your home and to uh, say uh, Happy Easter. The Lord is risen indeed this morning and so uh, may the Lord bless you this morning as we've been worshiping together now as we open up the Word of God. Indeed, today and, and uh, this weekend might go down as one of the strangest Easter weekends in, uh, in all of our time as families and as a church because of the COVID-19 pandemic and because of isolation. And yet, as we heard earlier, uh, as much as uh, things are, that, that life goes on. We heard of two births and a wedding yesterday, and, and uh, so we, we adjust to a new normal, as we are being told. And the scriptures remind us that there is nothing new under the sun. And when I think about that, I think of way back in time and how uh, various plagues rocked planet Earth at times. In the 18th century, one of the worst plagues is smallpox killed about 400,000 Europeans in a year, many of them children. And in that same century, in 1796, a doctor from England named Edward Jenner suggested the idea of extracting the diseased lymph of a cow and inserting it into an eight-year-old boy that was sick. Many thought he was crazy, and yet the science of immunology was, was born. And since then, countless vaccinations have saved countless lives. The deadliest pandemic of influenza for Canada and the whole world was an H1N1 virus during the First World War, called sometimes the Spanish flu. In 1918 and 19, it killed, some suggest, up to 100 million people, and about 50,000 Canadians died. In 1928, the uh, Scottish physician Alexander Fleming noticed that a, a small amount of mold uh, that was growing in a culture had destroyed a deadly bacteria. He named it penicillin. And by the 1940s, scientists had refined an antibiotic that treated infections previously considered incurable. And we could go on and on about wave after wave of things that have happened, of various plagues and pestilence and diseases that have racked and affected humanity right up until 10 years ago, the swine flu. And uh, then God, in his mercy, would provide a cure, often by enabling somebody in science to find a cure. We need to do our part in this difficult season of COVID-19, but, but I want to encourage us all to keep our eyes on what God is doing in this season as well. What is God up to? And what is he calling us, his church, to do and to be in this season of time? And so before we open up the word, I would just ask again that we come to God in prayer and just lift up our world to him. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, again, we, we find ourselves meeting together from our living rooms and different homes, and we recognize that this is indeed a rare season, but not unheard of, and that, Father, we know that uh, in the past there have been things like this that have rocked the world, and you have done incredibly spiritually radically radical things in those days. And we ask you now, even in our age, would you do great things on earth because of this pandemic? Lord, would you arrest the attention of many people who, who have not been giving any attention to you, 
Father, would you, through this time, remind people, and even this morning, remind people that you are a living God, a living Savior, that Jesus Christ, you literally lived and walked on this earth, you died on a cross 2,000 years ago, and you were raised from the dead. And that, that, that significance of that death was, was that you, Lord, opened the way to heaven. And so, Father, would you, would you do your work, Lord, work that is beyond the physical realm to do the spiritual realm work? And in the midst of it, Lord, you know that many families on this earth are suffering and they're feeling the sting of death. And Lord God, we, we lift them up to you. Would you comfort them? And even this morning, as we open up your word, would you give words of comfort? Lord, would you give words of comfort? as we face death around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 1999, I was living in northwestern Ontario, and in Kenora, there was, uh, the Baptists were having a a group of meetings, and uh, the guest speakers were Leroy and Virginia Imes. Now, some of you might recognize that name. Leroy Imes wrote many books on discipleship back in the 1970s and 80s. And um, he came and and shared with us that weekend. And uh, he began his first session by sharing his testimony. He was uh, actually one of the U.S. Marines in World War II. And he was part of a squadron that was asked to go on shore and secure an island from the Japanese after Pearl Harbor. And they had to go from ship to shore on what they called LSTs, landing ship tanks. He said to us that the Marines called them large, slow targets. And so here he was on this landing ship on his way toward an island occupied by the Japanese, and they would land these boats, the, 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 the front door would drop, and they'd run onto the beaches. And after he had found cover, he, he was laying in the sand, and he, he, he'd found cover, and he, he noticed that right beside him there was another Marine lying in a pool of blood. And he was riddled with machine gun fire. And all he could say, his only words to Leroy as he looked him in the eye was, Do you know how to pray? I need prayer. At that time, Leroy Imes did not know how to pray. He was not a Christian at that time. And so he grabbed another Marine on the other side of him, and he said, do you know how to pray? And the man swore at him, so he figured he had the wrong guy. And then when he turned back to the other man that was dying, he'd already died. And he was staring right at Leroy. And the first word, the first thought in Leroy's mind at that moment was, where did that guy go? What happened to him? It was the first of several experiences that led Leroy Imes to become a follower of Jesus Christ years later. As a pastor, I have the sacred privilege of standing on holy ground on many occasions. The holy ground that I am speaking of is usually in a hospital room. As I listen to each breath as though it might be the last one, and several times it has been. That's holy ground. That's when I think a soul takes flight from the body, 
from this mortal vessel that the soul has been housed in for years. And then when it takes flight, all that is left on earth to look at is this body, this empty vessel, this vacant room, a body emptied of its glory. Some years ago, I was with my dad when he breathed his last. And uh, before the mortician came and took his body from the care home in Kenora, I wanted to go in and have one last moment with my dad. And I walked into the room where he had died a couple hours earlier, and the words came to me, as clear as I am standing here, the words came to me, I think Jesus gave them to me fresh. He said, he's not here, he has risen. He's not here. He has risen. Do you know, several of us are facing very difficult times right now. Some of you, like Pat and I, are facing the difficulty of having an elderly mother or father in a home and you cannot see them. They're in lockdown and and they're dying. And uh, that's where Pat's mom is at right now. And it is difficult, for we want to be with them. We want to give them words of comfort. FaceTime is not good enough. And uh, we ask for prayer on these fronts. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm in these holy moments, when I'm on that holy ground, when I'm in, in the presence of someone whose soul is about to take flight from their body, I, I want to bring somebody else in there with me. I want the obsessed businessman who's thinking about his investments on earth, I want to bring him in with me by that deathside bed. I want to bring the preoccupied teenager that's thinking only about what the next party looks like. I want to bring them in with me. Let them stand beside the the bed as someone breathes their last. And hundreds of other people that have no thought of their own mortality. I want to bring them in with me on that holy ground, in that holy moment. Why do I want to do that? Well, I want to do it because like Leroy Ames found out in World War II, on the brink of eternity, values change. On the brink of eternity, values change. Somebody said that there are no atheists in foxholes. This morning I want to look at one of the most quoted passages of Scripture in the New Testament, and um, I want to examine something that Jesus said on the other side, from our side, on the other side of his death and resurrection. Some of the last words that Jesus shared with the 12 when he announced that he would die and that he would rise again, found in John chapter 14. And so if you have a Bible and want to read it with me, at John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you? And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself so that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going, Jesus said. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word of the Lord. Jesus describes in this scripture the Father's house, which we would associate, of course, with heaven. The Father's house. The Bible has so much to say about the Father's house, about heaven. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he said, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Describing the glories that will come for the believer. I love what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, To enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded to be on earth. And that is because, he says, you become all that God intended you to be and join in joyful union with Jesus Christ. What a pretty picture. Fully sanctified. Fully glorified. And then you remember the, the, the hymn writer, John Newton, the one that wrote Amazing Grace? He writes this. <clears throat> he says, when I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders. The first wonder will be to see many people there that I did not expect to see there. <laughs> the second wonder will be to miss many people whom I did expect to see there. And the third wonder and the greatest of all will be to find that I myself am there. Oh, what a glory. And oh, what a mercy one day to think that we, undeserving as we are, would be one day by the grace and mercy of God in that wonderful and eternal place where sin is no more. <clears throat> In John 14, the passage that we have read, Jesus has just announced to his disciples that he's leaving them and he, they cannot go where he's going at this time. This is a time when they are rocked. They are not sure what to do. For three and some years, they have been walking with him, being trained by him, and now he is leaving them. And that's why he begins in chapter 14, verse 1, by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. You know, it's always good to understand the context of words so that because then, then they have more meaning. I remember the day, well, not the day, but I remember when I first heard the backstory of my wife's favorite hymn, When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Way. Uh, that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, when I first heard the backstory about the author Horatio Spafford and, and how it was written in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when the captain had notified Horatio to come up on deck because they were at the very place where his wife and daughters drowned sometime earlier. And he got up on deck and he wrote this hymn and the hymn goes, When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul when I heard that story all of a sudden that hymn I can't sing it I can't sing it anymore without thinking of that author and what he faced. 
And when I read these words of Jesus and I think about how these disciples were so terrified at his leaving them, and as Jesus had so many more things on his mind than just the twelve, I think of how it must have pained him to even say them to him. It was spoken, these words, to a group of people who had taken, had the wind taken out of their sails. They were confused and they were afraid. And what does Jesus speak of? He speaks of the way to the Father's house. Now before we go further and we really unpack some of the principles of the assurances that we have from Jesus, I really want to just go back in this text. And if you have a Bible and are sitting with it, I want you to just follow me. I'm just going to pick it apart. Just one verse at a time. I'm going to pick it apart and, and examine it a little bit more. First of all, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. The answer to the question why follows why you don't need to let your hearts be troubled. Notice, he says, you can let your hearts be troubled, but you don't need to let your hearts be troubled. So how is it that you don't let your hearts be troubled? Trust in God or believe in God. Believe also in me, he says. And then he goes on to say this in verse 2. Why don't you have to let your hearts be troubled? Because in my Father's house are many rooms. And I love how the ESV says it. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I mean, it's his logic. If there were not enough room in my father's house, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you there? No, that would be deceptive. And he says in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you. Now, this is the second time that the Lord Jesus has used the word go. We have to ask the question, go where? Where is Jesus going? Where is he planning to go? Again, we have to see the context. The context is, this is the night before Jesus' death. What Jesus is talking about here immediately is not going to heaven. What Jesus is talking about here is going to the cross, going to death, and coming back from death from the resurrection back to life. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Come again. What's he referring to? Is he referring to a second coming? I don't believe so. He's referring to what he's going to say later on in this same evening about the Holy Spirit, the counselor, whom he will send in the name of Jesus. And then he says, you know the way. And Thomas says, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so we don't know the way. And Jesus says, you know the way, because you know me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this passage of Scripture is not as difficult to understand as some make it. So I want to unpack just a few of the promises that we have from this scripture, some of the things that we can learn. This is one of those passages of scripture where regardless of the question, the answer is Jesus, okay? It's one of those kinds of lessons. And the first thing I'd like to say is that the peace of God is given to us because Jesus himself is the peace of God. And he's given it to us to protect our hearts from being troubled and afraid. 
Why do we not need to be troubled, verse 1? Because, verse 2, because there's a place for you in the Father's house and because Jesus went to the cross, now past tense. At the time he wrote it, it was yet to come. But now he has gone to the cross and he's come back. He's prepared a place for you and I who believe in him. Many years ago, Pat and I were uh, able to go to a conference at the Chateau Lake Louise. And uh, I was told that the Chateau Lake Louise can house over a thousand people. And I, I knew that it was big and it was beautiful. <clears throat> but the organization that we were going with was paying our way. They, was, they were reserving rooms at the Chateau Lake Louise for us. And it wouldn't have mattered how big and how beautiful Chateau Lake Louise was if we didn't have reservations because there's no way we were going to stay there apart from that. In the same way, it doesn't matter how big and beautiful heaven is or the Father's house if you do not have someone who's made a reservation for you. <clears throat> Many people think that they are ready for heaven because they're not bad enough for hell. But what is it that makes a person ready for heaven? It's because you have a reservation and someone has made it for you, Jesus himself. You cannot arrive at heaven's door as the proverbial Peter standing at the door would say. You cannot arrive at heaven's door and ask Peter to look under your last name for the reservation that you've made in heaven while you've lived your life on earth. No, you won't be found there. The only name in the registry at the book of heaven is the name of Jesus and if you do not find yourself under his reservation, there is no room for you. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Your reservation is only under Jesus. And you can only have peace that you do have assurance of eternal life if you have Jesus. For he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so Jesus told us that, that we can be at peace and not allow our hearts to be troubled. In verse 27, in this same chapter, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But Jesus is not only the peace of God for us, he's also the place of God. Where is the Father's house? Good question. Where is it? The Father's house is used in the Old Testament to describe the temple. Jesus referred to the Father's house in the New Testament as the temple. But we know that that's been destroyed, that temple. Where is the Father's house? Where is heaven? If you were to go on the streets of Winnipeg today and ask people, what happens to you when you die? Do you believe in heaven? What is heaven? I am sure you'd get many responses. Some people would say that there is no heaven. You simply die and, and, and that's it. You live here and you die and that's it. Annihilationism. Others would say that after you die, you, you get repackaged and sent back. Reincarnationism. Some might say that everyone's going to go to heaven one way or another, no matter which way you choose. Universalism. I don't know, but some might even say that heaven is here and now, though it's hard to believe that. And I'm not sure what kind of ism that is. 
But the key question that we must ask of this scripture and of Jesus in this text, the key question that we must ask is, where is the place that Jesus is talking about when he says, I go to prepare a place for you? Where is the prepared place? That's the key. Because there's no sense in us leaving the bonds of humanity and mortality behind and going somewhere if it's not a prepared place by someone who's been there and back to tell about it like Jesus has. I love what John Piper says about this text. He says, I go to prepare a place for you is the essence of what he is saying. I go this night through death for you, and I go Easter Sunday morning out of death for you, so that I myself, he says, will be your place, your dwelling place. I am your room, Jesus says, in the Father's house. I must die, I must rise, I must be glorified, I must intercede for you, and when I have done all that, then I will be ready, and I will come and take you to myself. You see, this passage is not talking about the second coming. This passage is telling us all that Jesus has already accomplished on this side of heaven. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come. And he has come. He has sent his Holy Spirit. He has come and he has given every believer, every person who's put their trust in Jesus, the, the living presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, to abide within us so that we can know that we abide in him. We have a dwelling place already. So what might surprise you is that, that really Jesus is not speaking of the Father's house as much as a place as he is speaking of it as a person. There is no concept, concept of a place apart from the person of Jesus. And that leads us to another promise in John 14, 3. He says, I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come back. And what does he say? Take you to that place? No, he doesn't say that. He says, and I will come back and take you to myself, he says. Verse 3. So that you will be where I am. Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you to myself. I'm the place. I am your dwelling place. According to this verse, the Father's house and heaven is where Jesus is. Let me ask to you a rather twisted question, and I don't want you to answer it. But the twisted question is this. Would you want to be in heaven if Jesus wasn't there? It's a kind of a test question, isn't it? You see, Jesus is the peace of heaven. Jesus is the place of heaven. Jesus is the path to heaven, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the presence of heaven right now with you. Jesus is the person of the Father. Notice what he says in John 14. And uh, Philip says to him in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? If you've, seen the, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. 
Now, I'm not suggesting to you for a moment, please do not hear me say that the second coming is something not important. It's very important. The second coming of Jesus is a glorious event that we look forward to. It's just not spoken of in this chapter. Luke records it, for example, in the last verses of the Gospel of Luke, chapter in, in verses 50 and 51 of the last chapter. It says, When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he, lift, he left them, and he was taken up to where? Heaven. And then we, we see as the book of Acts open, and the same, same author, Luke, says in verse 1, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did, began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And then in verse 10, it says later on, they were all looking up into the sky where Jesus had been ascended into heaven. And as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand or looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Indeed, Jesus is right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Paul, in speaking about our following of Jesus after we die and we are resurrected, he says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50, he says that we're going to receive new bodies. He says we're going to, to uh, experience, after the second coming, a, a, a glorified body that does not decay. For flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says in chapters 5, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if this earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God eternal in the heavens. You see, God has planned that these mortal bodies will be laid aside one day and we will put on immortality and all who trust in Jesus will follow him through his death and into his resurrection and live forever with him. For we already are in him and he in us. And so Paul is able to say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, because our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. This is talking about the second coming. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, what will he do? He will transform our lowly bodies, metamorphe. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Wow. <clears throat> the second coming indeed is a reality that we look forward to. But in John 14, Jesus is talking about promise he was, promises he was going to fulfill the very next day as he went to death and then three days later as he came back from resurrection and was again among them. He is talking about the peace and the assurance that we can have because he did go. He did go to the cross. He did go to the grave. He did come back as a risen Christ. And he has prepared a place for us. And that place is ready for you. The question is, are you ready for that place? In uh, Milan, there's a cathedral with three inscriptions over the doorway. On the right doorway, it says... 
all that pleases is just for a moment. Over the left doorway it says, all that troubles you is just for a moment. And then the center doorway above the door it says, nothing is important save that which is eternal. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Trust in God. Trust also in me, he said. A.W. Tozer wrote a book many years ago called The Pursuit of God. He writes these words. This is 60 years ago or so, he wrote. To most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He is a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate. But he remains personally unknown to the individual. Many people think, he says, that he must be. God must be, they say. Therefore, we will believe. For millions of Christians, nevertheless, God is no more real than he is to the non-Christian. They go through life trying to love an ideal and be loyal to a principle. Their ideas their ideas are brain deep, but not life deep. When I read those words, they, they kind of rattled me. That believers in Jesus Christ can go brain deep, but not life deep. Is it time, I ask you, to get past your ideas of God and really know God? who is life eternal, Jesus himself, the way, the truth, and the life, the one who is the peace of God, the place of God, and all of God is found in him, and there is no heaven apart from him, and there is no eternity apart from him. The, the words <clears throat> from the book by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, give a refreshing perspective on heaven. And I'd like to conclude uh, our time just thinking about these words because they take us into the, the realm of the, the life to come that Jesus has secured for all who trust in him. And it writes this way, it says this way, there, there was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly, to the kids. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, no longer he looked like to them a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were, were so great and so beautiful that I cannot even write about them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last... They were beginning chapter one of the great story. 
which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are the one to thank. You're the only one to thank. Jesus, you are the one who is the peace of God so that our hearts will not need to be troubled. You, Lord Jesus, are the path to God so that we won't need to get lost on this earth. You, O Lord, are the place of God. It's your Father's house that is our house, and we dwell in you, and you've made the reservation, and so that that reservation has our name under yours. And Lord, not only are you the peace and the path and the place of God, but you're the presence of God. You're the person of God. And all who know you, by virtue of knowing you, know the Father. Lord Jesus, may everyone who has come under the hearing of this message know you, Lord Jesus, for whom to know is life eternal. We pray in your name.